Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. After leaving teaching because of some serious burnout, she vowed to build the community she wished existed when she needed it most. She went from classroom teacher to an educational consultant, instructional designer, and six-figure business owner. Now, she's here to help you achieve happiness and work-life balance, whether inside or outside the classroom. Come join our discussion as we talk about managing teacher burnout, career transitions outside the classroom, starting a side hustle, and everything in between. Here's your host of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast and your new personal cheerleader, Daphne Gomez. Welcome to the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Daphne Gomez. In this episode, I interview Lacey Smith all about her new career outside of the classroom. We talk about how she combined the skills she already had and developed in writing, editing, and research, and ultimately landed her dream role as an editor at a major test prep company. Hi, Lacey. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thanks for having me. Lacey, I would love if you started a little bit with just your history of being a teacher. What made you actually want to get into teaching? And then how long were you a teacher for? Um, So I started teaching probably when I was an undergrad. I did a job just as like a work study job when I was studying abroad in Germany. I was a tutor for English language learners. And that was the first time I'd ever taught. And I just loved it. I loved that you were essentially getting paid to have a conversation with people. Um, I loved that I was able to inspire people just by sort of showing up and doing my job. It felt like I had purpose. And so after that, I thought, you know, I'd really like to be a teacher, but I really wanted to teach at the college level. And so when I finished up my undergrad, I got a master's in comparative literature. And then I went on to get the PhD in comparative literature with the hopes of becoming a college professor. And so during the process of getting the PhD and the master's, I acquired about eight years of teaching experience, um, either as a teaching assistant in either German or literature courses. But then I also started to get my own courses. So I taught, you know, intro to comp lit. I taught spatial concepts of literature, um, literary theory, that sort of thing. So then I started working as an adjunct right after my PhD, and I was working in German and literature. And after that, because adjuncting didn't work out, I decided to move to the K through 12 level get me some insurance. And I did one year as a German teacher, expecting to only be there for the one year because I was someone's maternity leave relief. And then the second year, they asked me to come back and do English. So I did that. And so that's my my total teaching journey. So that last year of teaching English, was that when you realized you wanted to make a complete pivot or was the whole time really you exploring the opportunity? Because it sounded like professor was your, your first 
goal. Yeah, professor was my first goal. And what I was liking about the high school teaching was that I was doing a um, concurrent enrollment college composition course. So even though I was teaching at the high school level, I was getting to teach college level concepts to students who were really motivated to learn them. I really, really loved that aspect of it. Um, I also found that I loved teenagers. I thought I was not going to love hanging out with teenagers and it turned out they're really awesome. And so, you know, I was kind of on the fence that whole year, like, do I want to keep teaching at the high school level? Do I want to try and get a college job or do I want to switch careers? And for a long time, I really was on the fence. Um, But then I experienced just like a really negative event at my school. And it made it kind of seem like the best move was to move on. And what that event was, was um, there was a teacher at my school who had been there a really long time and was also the main union rep for our school. And he'd engaged in some behavior that I perceived as very sexist and I had kind of ignored it and ignored it, ignored it. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually I confronted him in public forum and I'll admit I could have maybe been more cordial in the way I confronted him perhaps, but ultimately um, I did confront him. And as a result, a few days later, I received a death threat from one of my coworkers. And what happened is My school was supportive. They did give me a few days off, that sort of thing. But ultimately, they did seem much more concerned with covering up what had happened and keeping parents from finding out or the community from finding out than from addressing the fact that like a fellow teacher had sent me a death threat. Um, It was fat phobic in nature. It was sexist in nature. I mean, it was very obvious that like, like you are disgusting. No one wants you here. Go die. And... They wanted me to keep that a secret, and I did, so that we could try and figure out who did it. I had to work really, really hard to get that person out of the classroom. They really didn't want to remove that person from the classroom once we figured out who had done it. And when I went to apply for a job, they said that I was not qualified enough to keep teaching in my position, even though there were four open positions in my department. So I could have moved on to a new school district after that, but it just, it really left a sour taste in my mouth for teaching. And that's when I was like, you know, I don't get paid enough to deal with this. This is too much stress, especially, you know, my first two years, I was pandemic teaching for the entire time I was a high school teacher. So yeah, I just had to move on after that. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. I think that there are so many teachers who have not stories of this level, but a story similar where something was hidden from the public just for a PR standpoint, even though it Mm -hmm. may be in other people's best interests for parents to know whether or not this person was sound enough to be in a classroom, you know, that, that shows a lack of judgment on the admin point. Oh, absolutely. And then also the fact that they didn't renew your teaching contract shows that they honestly valued kind of keeping it a secret more than renewing someone and, and keeping you that had to have had a huge impact on your self-esteem and, and just where you were at mental health wise during your career search. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it was it was awful at first, right? I mean, there were a few other things that really made it hard. One of them was that the principal didn't address it with me, did not speak to me about it for seven weeks. Um, so what, you, what happened was HR was interviewing people and they were talking about like this, this message that Lacey had received. 
but I wasn't able to talk about it and nobody was setting the record straight and the principal wouldn't address that an issue would happen. And so the rumor became that I had made it up and that I had done this to myself. And so not only was like the rumor going around that something awful had happened to me, but the rumor extended to, oh, clearly she made it up. So that was traumatizing in and of itself. The second part was, you know, when I lost my job, I lost my insurance. So I was seeing a therapist until my contract ended in July, and then I couldn't see a therapist anymore after that. I didn't have the insurance to do so. Um, So that just felt like insult to injury. The third part was that, you know, I had gone to the union to try and get help, but the person I had challenged was a union rep. And so I took it to the district level only to have the district president tell me, you know, you really would never have gotten that death threat if you hadn't sent that email challenging this one person and telling me they had no interest in seeing the death threat. So then I had to go the way all the way to the state union level. And that's when I finally got some help. Um, but I just really got the message that, like, even if they had wanted to keep me, I wasn't worth the trouble that I was causing, that the trouble I was causing by expecting them to actually do something about this was much worse than the death threat itself. Um, And this went all the way to like, you know, I was scheduled for an interview for these open positions because I actually had a one-year contract, but, you know, it was kind of assumed that if there were a bunch of open positions, the people who'd been in one-year contracts would at least, you know, get an interview. And, you know, the interview committee interviewed with me and then were told that they couldn't weigh in on who they wanted to hire, that in order to keep it, you know, above board, that they couldn't weigh in. And so there was all this effort made to shut me out rather than address the real issue. And insult to injury would be, um, I guess, you know, I didn't come back in the fall, but my colleagues who did said that the entire fall training was, you know, the principal quoting things I'd said to him. And, you know, I was used as this inspiration for how they need to change school culture. And meanwhile, I was not there. (laughs) So it just, it was all, it was a cluster, you know what, you know, it was, it was nonsense. So that did leave me in this like very traumatized position when I'm going to apply for jobs, right? Like, I'm not just, oh, it would be nice to find a new job. It's, I've been discarded. (laughs) I don't have access to my trauma therapist. And oh, by the way, I need to find a new job. (laughs) That was quite the place to be in. And I'm hopefully there's other people not in that position, but I know they are. No, it's it's something that's so common with people that I work with who are trying to transition into new careers as they're coming from a place of trauma. They're having something happen, not mm-hmm. this exact story. If there is, if there are school districts that this exact story is happening all over, that is a phenomenon in the cells that we need to start yeah. getting the news involved. Address. But, you know, people are coming from really stressful work environments they're coming from really stress-filled environments and a job search in itself is a stressful situation it's something that takes a lot out of you emotionally and if you don't feel like you have anything to give it can be even lower absolutely how did you start to evaluate different career options at that point well the the teacher career coach instagram was actually very helpful to me because i would be kind of in that dark place and a post would pop up 
And it would be like, hey, you don't deserve to feel like this. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, like that's what I needed right in this moment. So I would say even just having that kind of stuff on my radar, like your posts on Instagram was helpful because it's really easy to get in that echo chamber of I'm a bad person if I leave teaching or I'm leaving the kids behind or if I were a good person, this wouldn't have happened to me or all sorts of things that just aren't true. And so having other people or other resources tell you like, no, you're not imagining how badly you were treated at your last job or how wrong what happened to you is. And yeah, you actually do have value in other fields. So just kind of allowing myself to be supported by others who knew what I was going through was a big step. And then I think it was just a matter of like taking it one step at a time. Like one day I sat down and I took the um, the career quiz you have to sort of match you with potential careers. And I found out that maybe instructional design would be good. So the next time I had energy, I looked up instructional design. And maybe I only had the energy to do that that day. So, you know, I could have started looking for jobs as soon as I didn't get my job back in, you know, June. But it honestly took me till like August before I felt comfortable really looking for jobs. And then I would say I, you know, I got my new job at the end of September. So it was a little bit of a process, but it wasn't a crazy long process. It's not like I spent the whole year unemployed. So you started looking for instructional design positions. And what did that process look like for you? I know you ended up taking an editor position, but I'd love to hear even a little bit of your process of instructional design work. Yeah. So the reason I was interested in instructional design work is I did have some background in freelance writing. And I had mostly done trivia questions for trivia companies. So I thought, you know, like I can write tests. I can write, you know, when I was pandemic teaching, I was using Pear Deck and Canva and all these different things to engage people online. So I thought, you know, I can learn other technologies. Um, I actually started to learn Adobe Audition. I didn't end up needing to learn much more, but I started because I read that it was important for instructional design. Um, But really, it was just a matter of I Googled instructional design resumes. I looked at, I think you had some available, but I also Googled some others. And I just started to think about, okay, how could I create like an instructional designer version of my resume? And I'll use that as a base so that if I find like a curriculum development position, that's not quite the same, but it's close enough to this. So I picked that as my base. And I actually put that base resume that I made, which honestly, I don't think was the best version of my resume, but I put that base on LinkedIn and then I got LinkedIn premium, which here's my hot tip. LinkedIn premium is free for a month. I never actually ended up needing to pay for it because by the end of the month I'd gotten my job. So that I just canceled it. And the very first thing LinkedIn premium does is it looks at the resume you have on there and it says, Hey, we think you should apply for this job. And the editor position I applied for was actually one that LinkedIn premium suggested to me. So they said, we looked at what you have We think that this company will like you. So I looked at the posting and then it was a matter of um, tailoring to the postings, which is its own whole thing. But um, that's how I found the job is by posting that instructional designer resume and then seeing kind of what popped up on LinkedIn from there. So the role that you applied for as an editor, were they looking for anyone with clear editing experience? And I know you said you already did some freelance writing and clearly you have a PhD in 
literature. So that probably showed some credibility and experience in that area. But I'm curious what they were really looking for with an editor. Yeah, I mean, I'd definitely be lying if I said that the PhD didn't help me. Like, of course, I think it did. But I was hired at the same time as another person who had a master's and rather than a PhD. So I don't think that that alone was the issue. Um, I think what they were really interested in, and I actually I crowdsourced with my my crew before I went on this podcast. I was like, what do you think people should know? And what kept coming up is a lot of people don't realize that editors have to learn a lot of things, right? So for instance, one of my first jobs working for this exam prep company was hey, we need you to edit this test for a paramedic exam. Do I know anything about being a paramedic? No, but I do know how to Google things. And so, you know, we have the tests written by a subject matter expert, so we can assume that they're written by an expert. But for instance, maybe they spelled something wrong, so you have to look it up. So what I noticed is that they really respond to people who have a thirst for knowledge and are really interested in doing research um, or who are like, you know what, I don't know how to do seventh grade geometry because I'm an English teacher, but I'd be happy to learn seventh grade geometry um, or learn what I need to know so I can at least edit it effectively. So I went on a tangent there. No, I love that tangent. That was a very (laughs) helpful tangent. So how long do they give you to go down the Khan Academy rabbit hole and teach yourself trigonometry for you to edit the test questions? I mean, you're kind of doing it on the fly. If there was ever like a really serious issue, like we have, our company has you know, relationships with subject matter experts. So if a medical question came up, for instance, we have doctors that we talk to. But for the most part, it's like, can I Google and see if they spelled, you know, diaphragm properly? Sometimes they haven't. And then I I do. But for instance, I was just doing one the other day that was, it was for a nurse's exam. And it was a vocabulary test, which I was an English teacher, I have written plenty of vocabulary tests in my day. But I had to make it medical specific. So the conventions of a vocabulary test, I know plenty, but do I have to Google what certain medical acronyms stand for so I can write a question about it? Yes. But in the process, I'm learning medical acronyms. So it's sort of a lot of learning on the fly. It's sort of being comfortable with, I can edit something even if I don't know the subject itself perfectly, perfectly well, but also recognizing when you need to get outside verification so that you're putting out factual information. I think also it depends on the type of editing you're doing. I love that you touched on that a little bit also because I, when I was an instructional designer, I was creating the e-learning resources for like a teacher certification program and not all teachers or former teachers are made equal. And I worked with someone and as we were creating um, the test questions, there was a lot of back and forth where I felt like I was backed into a corner with someone who could not decide how to move forward with the test question. They would Mm -hmm. want to reiterate and reiterate and reiterate. Mm -hmm. Well, technically, maybe that's not entirely accurate. Technically, maybe if they read it this way, maybe that's not entirely accurate and overthink it where that makes this work far more difficult. Mm -hmm. You need someone Mm -hmm. who can take decisive action, know when they need to outsource to the subject matter expert, but also... I know, matter of factly, I can write this down if I end up getting the feedback that I need to change it in the next reiteration. Yes, but let's move forward with it. Yeah, I, that, I think that's one of the things that's nice about an edit, being an editor is you are the person who gets to be decisive. So like if someone hands you content and you're like, nope, this needs to be spelled this way, you're the final call. You don't have to argue with anyone about that. Um, obviously, I 
you know, I interface a lot with the other editors so that we're all kind of on the same page. But it's nice to have that sort of power hierarchy where like, no, I'm the editor and it's my job to make the final call on that. At the same time, like being able to recognize that you have other resources available to you, other humans that you can talk to is, I think, a part of like the decision making process that comes with being an editor. I think also there's the thing of, you know, not getting too precious about your own work. Like if I write something, someone else might edit it differently and that's fine versus like, oh, I wrote it this way. So I really need it to stay this way. Like, no, it's going to get edited. Just accept it. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. How do you feel like the work-life balance is with your editing position? I know a lot of inferences that people make is they see positions that may feel like you're just staring at a computer all day and it's going to be really rigorous or like hard and and you're going to be just drained by the end of the day. I'd love to hear what that feels like. I actually love this question because I think it's the biggest surprise for me in switching. So the two things for me are I like to be active. I like to be up and around. I'm not the type of person who likes to sit usually and I'm also extremely extremely social so having a job where I was like up in front of 150 high school students a day was great and now I sit at a computer Um, so that was a hard transition at first but what I'm finding is you know my day ends at 5 p.m so if I want to go have drinks with my friends I'm not too wiped out to do it so work doesn't have to be my social outlet I can be alone all day and then go hang out with my friends same thing with like you know, I used to like having summers off, but now I have a job where as long as you're being reasonable about project deadlines, you have essentially unlimited PTO. So for instance, I told my boss already, I was like, you know what, I've had Coachella 2020 tickets for like two years. It's supposed to happen in 2022. I really want to be able to take that weekend off. And he was like, oh yeah, there's literally no problem with that. And Beyond that, he's like, I won't even schedule you for a major project in April. I'll just have you do odd jobs that month so that we're not messing up the schedule, right? The idea of something like that happening (laughs) as a teacher is that would never happen, right? There's no sort of recognition of your humanness and your need to like go do stuff like go to a silly music festival because you want to. I remember I had unlimited pay time off at the company that I was working for as an instructional designer. And it was in the middle of the pandemic. And Jonathan and I just felt like we needed to go somewhere, Mm -hmm. but it was not some we did not want to go inside like restaurants. We didn't want to do Mm -hmm. anything really risky. So we just rented, I think, 
an Airbnb and a car and we went and we just hiked the Narrows in Utah because we're school was in session. There weren't going to be tourists. It just felt like it was going to be safe. And I was able to take like an entire week off paid. And just as long as you give them advance notice, many of Mm -hmm. the companies are really flexible. That's actually something that now that I'm a business owner and we have a team and I actually have employees, I'm able to give flexible paid time off. We barely started using it uh, this last holiday break. We were starting to (laughs) pick on top of Christmas. Yeah. Take three days off after the Christmas break, because you, you know, maybe you have a different uh, custody arrangement. So you want to take this week off, but then you also want to go somewhere different. So many companies are really flexible with that. And I think teachers always forget what those types of benefits would look like. As an editor, are you working? And I know it sounds like you got this during the pandemic. Are you completely remote for good? Or is there a potential to go back into office for this position? Basically, basically, we're completely remote. Um, Before the Omicron variant, we were expected to be in office one day a week, um, which is actually an hour commute for me, but I didn't mind because it was one day a week. And interestingly, so... It's, well, it's a little bit longer than an hour. It's an hour and a half commute. But the point is, um, they made the arrival time 10.30 a.m. And we end by 3 p.m. so that they can count my commute time as part of my work day. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm basically getting paid to commute on those days, which is pretty great. Kind of another thing to speak to that. So we, we are almost fully remote. They recognize that we have life stuff going on. So if I say like, hey, I have a doctor's appointment at 3.30 p.m., they're just like, okay, that's fine because it's not like I need to physically be anywhere. Um, which again, like imagining having to do something that last minute as a teacher, even if I could have gotten away with it, it would have been a matter of like finding another teacher to cover my particular periods and, and that sort of thing. Whereas like here, because we're remote, especially there's just so much more flexibility for the fact that like, Hey, you live at your house and have to do house stuff sometimes. Right. If I need to run to the grocery store for half an hour, nobody's going to freak out. Uh, I remember that last year that I was teaching I had a very toxic work environment where we had two personal days and the principal would, this is far before COVID, far before even like sub shortage, the principal would still text and say, what are you doing on your day off? Because she just needed control and wanted to make sure that you knew she was paying attention to the fact that you took like a mental health day from her. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. once I went into other work environments, I realized they're going to say, here are our deadlines. In three months, there might be a lot of crunch time. I'm going to be transparent when you get into this work. October is our busy season. So please don't plan anything around October because that's when you're really busy with X, Y, and Z. But if you want to take vacations, here's the other days. And it's just the way that other industries work. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I felt was just feeling a lot more respected in my roles. And I know that you were feeling really disrespected. So I'd love to hear just how your confidence 
started to grow after you left and found this new position? Um, well, I'm, I'm really thankful to my work team because um, not everybody on my team knows what happened at my last job. It's not like I just like sent out a public announcement. Um, but I did let my immediate supervisor know, you know, just what had happened because I was traumatized and stuff could still come up at work and I just wanted him to be aware. And he was really kind. And then um, the two like sort of closer friends I've made at work, I've told. And all of them have, because they know what went down at my last job, they've gone out of their way to be like, you're so valuable to our team. I really appreciate your input. Um, I appreciate you socially, like what you socially add to our team. Like this idea of trying to make each other feel welcome and feel good is absolutely part of the work culture. It's a, you know, we have a very isolating job where we're alone a lot of the day. So when we do have meetings, like, my boss will take the time to be like, what are you doing for New Year's? Or like actually get to know me. And it it took a while. I mean, I didn't realize, I mean, I knew how traumatized I was by my last job, but I didn't realize even just how kind of withdrawn I was because I felt like I just couldn't be myself around the people I was working with all the time. And now it's just sort of like, hey, we respect you and we appreciate what you're doing. And there's also, I mean, that also comes out in the whole, you know, I trust you if you need to take an hour on a Friday to go do a doctor's appointment. I trust that that's a real thing. That trust, um, there's sort of respect for my judgment. Like I was on my own editing project by the second week I was working. I cannot imagine any education situation where someone would have trusted me with something like that that quickly. But the fact is my boss knew I knew what I was doing. He saw enough to say like, hey, you can handle this and just let me do my job. And I just didn't realize how much I wanted someone to just let me do my job. Um, I think I had mentioned to you at some point, um, the teachers at my old school are now required to document each time they establish emotional connection with a student to prove that they are forming positive relationships with students. And like that level of not expecting people to rise to the professional occasion is just so infantilizing and so like honestly offensive. And it's also a time waster. Like all the time you waste, I wasted trying to prove that I was a professional who knew what I was doing when it would just been, it would have been so much easier to work for someone who trusts that I know what I'm doing. And that's what I have now. I think that's like the biggest difference is they trust my judgment and they trust that I got the job for a reason. I think a lot of that is coming from district level decisions, from admin who are afraid of parents, parents who are pushing back and saying our students need more support when it comes to social emotional learning. And instead of saying, here's a professional development, I know everyone's going to probably scream like, Daphne, don't you dare say a professional development's going to train us on how to do our jobs. But (laughs) here's one resource on what we would suggest you start to implement with the changes that are happening for students this year, done and done. They're saying, I need you to tell me exactly how many times you smiled at Tim. So when Tim parents come in, you say, actually, I told Tim I liked his shoes seven times this month. Seven times this quarter, I made an emotional connection to Tim. Here's my documented evidence of it. And that's where teaching has become, you know, this job of just documenting, but without actually being able to give you the time and the space and the energy that you actually need to, to make a change, to actually make connections. If I'm sitting down and like doing a check mark, like I pinky swore that I told Tim I liked his shoes 
Like, then I'm not really taking the time to like sit and talk to him and listen to what he has to say or actually make a genuine connection. Cause I'm like, all right, Tim's shoes are cool. Now I got to go to Lacey. Hurry up. Yeah, exactly. And like, if you're trying to, it's how could it possibly come off genuine to the students? If you're like, Oh, I made sure to tell Miranda that her hair looks pretty today. Uh, let me go write that down so I can check off Miranda. I don't have to interact with her for a month. You know, <laughs> like it's just, it's a lot of it is just so like, we don't expect teachers to be adults. We treat them like the kids that they're teaching and we expect them to have a superhuman ability to get all these things done with the finite number of hours they have. And if they don't, it just must be because like, they're not excelling professionally and not because you know they received 120 emails in a single day which did happen to me once last year i would at that point just copy and paste <laughs> love your shoes tim love your yeah, shoes tim yeah, love exactly. your, just... <laughs> just like thanks for showing up today <laughs> oh my goodness and i i don't want to make this entire episode just us airing our grievances <laughs> on teaching because there are going to be people who are still in the classroom, but it's important to acknowledge some of the things that should be challenged on its efficiency and being able to recognize the difference of a couple of people on a podcast saying these things Mm -hmm. and being negative about it. How do we take this exact example and relay it back to whoever is in charge of making this and saying, I'd love to see the data on how this is effective. I'm open to to understanding what you are proposing here but i also don't think it's efficient yeah and i i think kind of speaking to that same point a lot of good teaching is intuitive and a lot of good editing is intuitive a lot of good any career that you do is intuitive you have to sort of build the skills and have the toolkit so that your intuition and your gut can tell you what's the right thing to do you know if an emotional situation pops up in a classroom i'm not thinking to myself now what's the protocol on abc i'm thinking what do i need to do right now to make sure my my classroom's safe that the student is safe whatever's happening is is done properly putting all that data in isn't teaching intuition it's teaching you you have to hit the data points and i think a a big part of kind of what we were talking about of like feeling respected as a professional is having that intuition respected and like recognizing that good teachers i mean the best teachers i saw when i was teaching who were inspirations to me who made me want to keep teaching were the ones who had just experienced a lot of different things and kind of knew what to do in each situation that's not something you're going to be able to put in an Excel spreadsheet. And so what I would think I would say to people who want to stay teachers who are like, man, you guys are really ragging on on the career field. I mean, like I said, I loved teaching. I didn't leave teaching because I stopped loving it. I left because it didn't feel like a safe environment for me anymore. But even when I loved teaching, I recognized that there were a lot of different ways I was being disrespected as a professional, that there were a lot of different inefficient ways we were spending our time and energy, and that a lot of the choices being made ultimately did not help my students. And in fact, to help my students, a lot of times I had to break protocols. Like, so for instance, we had one where we had to take mask breaks, but they also had to be five minutes. And I gave mask breaks, but they were not five minutes because that is not enough time for a student to get outside and like stretch and feel like they had a break. So, you know, I broke the rules and that's because my intuition was telling me that's what my students needed. And you know what? They would come back from the mask breaks and do a bunch of hard grammar 
as if it was no big deal. Um, I think that good teaching sometimes gets in the way of good administrating. I agree. I don't want this to be administrator coach podcast because, (laughs) you know, I know that I, I know that there are probably far fewer administrators listening right now, but they are also backed into a corner with a system that does not make sense. And I think Mm -hmm. there are plenty of great administrators who recognize what is needing to be changed and they're doing something about it. Mm -hmm. But with a big but, there are far too many that are not given proper leadership coaching, who do not understand how to delegate responsibilities, how to give autonomy, how to trust the professionals at their school district, how to do so in a positive, uh, collaborative community, one that engages their teachers who want to learn, who want to grow, Mm -hmm. who want to be able to explore different types of pedagogy, who want to be creative, who want to do really cool things with their students, who care about their students, who care about their students' mental health. There are some really, really, really unprofessional administrators out there. There are unprofessional people in every industry, even teaching. Mm-hmm. So yeah. just that caveat aside, but the the leadership for admin uh, skills 101 that course has been lacking for a while yeah and I, th- I think too even if you have like a really good admin like I'm thinking about the last school I was at I would say like of the admin I can think of there were two who were like really 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 good like they were doing everything at that school and then there were probably two that were you know neutral they weren't bad but they also weren't doing much to lessen the load for the two that were doing everything but then the ones that who were bad were actively creating more work for the ones who were who were more engaged and who were more trying to help teachers and students and so what was good about them was getting watered down by the fact that you had and i'm just gonna say i mean i'm never trying to get a job in that district again i mean you had a bunch of really not qualified um men with privilege who were getting paid a lot of money to benefit from the work of women, basically. Like the, the women administrators were doing three times the work and getting a third of the recognition. And that's just not conducive, uh, even beyond for teachers. I don't understand how any admin who is trying to make change can thrive if they have other admin working against them. And that played out even with the situation I was describing, right? You know, I had one or two admin who were really, really on my side and they were having their hands tied by these other admin who were saying, oh, don't talk to her about this or, oh, you know, that's a privacy issue. So you can't actually address that. Um, Or, oh, you know, you don't want to accidentally say the wrong thing. So don't talk to her about it, you know, so they would freeze me out. The one or two admin who really cared, I mean, I'll say they left the school. When what happened to me happened, they left the school. And I think I know why, you know. I just, I think it's hard for good admin to do what they need to do when bad admin who aren't as interested in that are kind of blocking them. That's, that's why I never want to generalize yeah. anyone in any profession because there are some great ones out there. I'd love to pivot and go back to the editing position a little bit more yes. before we wrap up because... I am sure that there are so many people who are interested in that role. And especially, do you see any um, career trajectory with your editing position? Or is, is there any room for growth 
within even the company that you're at using your editing experience as leverage. When they interviewed me, they asked how I feel about leading teams. So <laughs> I got the I got the sense that they want people that they can promote. And I do see kind of a trajectory that gets me kind of closer to the top. Interestingly, at my company, you know, as an editor, I'm actually already like fourth from the top. So it's not even like they started me off at entry level. I actually started off pretty high because of my experience. Um, and I will also say a lot of my editing team is former teachers because it's an educational publishing company. I do think that former teachers could get jobs in any editorial position, but especially educational publishing companies. I mean, you coming in with teaching experience is seen as an asset. I think being a teacher absolutely helped me. They wanted someone who had been pandemic teaching, for instance, so they knew what people responded to on online classrooms. Um, especially when we're breaking our books, they want someone who's like, okay, how is an actual student going to sit down with this exam prep book and use it? So for instance, I said some things like we had these little like mini tests in a book and the answers were way at the back of the book. And I was like, if you put the answers right there, they might actually do them. But if the answers are way at the back of the book, I don't know if, you know, eighth graders are going to do this. And they're like, you're right. And so we changed it. And sure enough, you know, it seems like it's more usable now. That's something I knew as a teacher from knowing how eighth graders are, not something I knew as a book designer or anything like that. Right. Um, so I think especially in educational publishing, um, being a teacher is really useful. I also think if I could talk about like resume tailoring for a bit, teachers really underestimate just how many of the things they do are actually editing skills. So are you detail oriented? Yes, you have to be. Um, are you able to organize large projects? Are you able to give instructions? Are you able to, um, take someone through the editing process as an English teacher. I mean, I literally taught groups of students constantly how to go through the editing process. So if I have to teach someone else how to edit, I've already done that. Right. Um, you correspond with parents. So you know how to correspond with stakeholders. Right. Um, when you start breaking down each of those individual little skills that you have as a teacher, a lot of them are editing skills, deadline attainment, right? Every time you've had to turn in grades by a certain time, that's deadline attainment. You know who loves deadline attainment? Editors. <laughs> so there's lots and lots of different things that you can you can break down your individual skills. Don't just think of it as, oh, I, I've taught. Think of it as I have managed a room of 25 people. I managed to keep them on task. And they were 14, by the way. So <laughs> it's like, I think... You have a lot of skills. And if you if you think about the skills individually when you're resume building, that's really, really important. That was such a great, helpful breakdown for anybody who is interested in tailoring their resume, um, specifically for editing jobs. If you're listening to that and you haven't listened to episode 29 of the podcast, it's all about writing a transition resume. So make sure you jump over to that episode. Also, if you need more support with the resume piece with your position, you are editing something that you're a subject matter expert in. You clearly have already basically been using these types of resources in your professional career. So you you came in strong as a great editor or a great candidate as an editor for this position. Have you explored, and it's okay if you haven't, but editing in different niches like a newspaper editor is probably a totally different beast than what you're doing. Yeah. Um, one thing I've done freelance uh, is I've done, because I have an academic background, I've done some freelance editing on academic writing, which is like a very, very different sort of way of being. Like it's, it's a lot about knowing how to do citations properly, um, knowing how to make a bibliography, that sort of thing. I don't have to know how to cite 
anything. I basically have to use the Chicago style guide, but citations aren't a thing in my world anymore. Um, I also have done a little bit of like, uh, like business editing, like I like, like marketing copy editing. Um, and honestly, that's not that different as much as what I'm doing is very niche and specific. It's not, I mean, editing is, is pretty much editing. You're making the format look right. You're making the grammar and flow sound right. And you're trying to match the tone that's appropriate for the occasion. So if you're doing really, really formal editing, it's really just a matter of, okay, I'm using a formal tone now. Whereas if I'm doing editing for an eighth grade, you know, practice exam, I'm going to approach it a little bit differently. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what you're doing is the same. Where niches become really useful is when you're applying. So let's say that I am a teacher who also is a yoga instructor, right? I might look for editing jobs in the wellness sector, knowing that I know a lot of the terms and a lot of the ways people talk about it. Um, Or maybe I'm a teacher who in the summer works as a contractor. Well, there's definitely like, you know, construction companies and stuff that need copy editors. So if you have a niche set of knowledge that's really really useful but if not i mean you can still apply to lots of editing positions and what i'll also say is you know i had to do an editing test when i when i got my first interview so usually you'll get a chance to edit something for someone and so that's where you can show your ability to um, adjust accordingly so don't just assume that you can't do a certain type of editing because as long as you can show in the editing test what you can do then you're a viable candidate. And this is one of those examples of where I feel like there may be variations in the title for similar types of roles. This exact role is called an editor, but it might just be a curriculum writer at a different position mm-hmm. or a content writer or a copy Or a speech writer. writer at another position. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. just knowing that there might be variations to the titles when you're starting to search, but knowing what each of the job duties are and feeling comfortable with understanding, you know, basics of copywriting like you were talking about um, addressing the tone. So if you're reading anything that's ever written in my tone, it's very informal. Like, hey, everybody, this is really stressful, comma, I know it is, comma, is going to be completely different than a very, you know, like very stress could be a side effect heavy. of blah, 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 blah. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, yeah. I was just speaking to the different titles, um, that actually reminded me of something that when I was crowdsourcing with my team, they reminded me of, um, you know, there's freelance editors, there's copy editors, there's proofreaders, but there's also stuff like, for instance, peer reviewers. So one of the people on my team was talking about a former editing job she had where she's like, we would make sort of this material, but we would then have to have a subject matter expert go in and verify that the material was accurate. So let's say you're a high school biology teacher. There might be some biology curriculum or something where they need peer reviewers. And that might even be something you're able to do freelance before transitioning. So like looking for peer reviewers, looking for proofreading. Um, I know Upwork sometimes has stuff like that. Um, I used to write for Verblio, which is not editing, but it gave me a lot of practice editing because a lot of times they want edits back. So I was able to talk about some of the edits for that in my interview. So really any kind of like freelance writing or editing you can do, especially if it's like peer reviews or stuff that's really easy for teachers to do, that's definitely going to help give you a leg up. Freelancing, especially in the writing world, it's 
so beneficial because you're able to actually share a portfolio of mm-hmm. I was the ghostwriter on this. This is you look at my name is already on this blog. Here's examples of work that I've done and especially examples of work that I've done in different genres helps people understand that you do have range that you do have experience. But a portfolio this experience is not going to be 100% necessary. So if you're listening to this and you are discouraged that you don't have time to do all of these freelance jobs. Just keep looking for work. Yeah. Don't. I mean, it's kind of something you can add that's beneficial. But if you don't have time, one thing I'll say about Verblio, and I'm not trying to like sell anybody on Verblio here, but you can start off at Verblio doing 300 word assignments that pay $11 each, which does not sound like much, but like you, ha- there's no interview. There's no anything that like, you could just do it. So you could sit down and write 300 words, get paid $11 and like, Hey, I published something. It's done, right? Um, As you do more and more, you get higher and higher jobs there. But if it's just a matter of like, hey, I have 30 minutes sometime, you can do that on Verblio. And then maybe you get 11 bucks out of it. You know, who knows? It's one of the things that I always encourage people to do is, okay, $11, you'll go, you'll get two lattes afterwards. It's not a lot of money, but it's also exposure for you to get your hands dirty and feel out if you even really mm-hmm. like doing this. Exactly. Because exactly. once you start to get your hands dirty in different things, you'll be surprised what you end up loving and what you end up saying, actually, I don't really find passion in this. I don't want to learn more about this. I don't want to keep going down this rabbit hole. So being able to figure that out ahead of time is such a great idea. Lacey, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much advice with this audience. This has been great. Before I sign off, I'd love to hear a little bit of what you are doing with the Explore Space, which is like a side project that I'd love for you to share yes. a little bit more about. Um, so this is actually, this is new for me. So I have the editing day job, but I also, I was really interested in, interested in starting a coaching space because I do like teaching and I, I wanted something that would allow me to kind of flex those muscles still and also potentially be a second source of income. So I started a I started it as, as sex coaching or sex and intimacy coaching. So it's the explorespace.com or at the explorespace on Insta. It's still pretty new. Um, I've, I've started to get, you know, a few clients here and there. So that's been great. But mostly it's just about helping people talk through sex. So I'm just one of those people who has never felt uncomfortable talking about any sexual subject. I can talk to you like I'm a 10th grade teacher, just I'm not going to blush. And so, you know, I have a friend who's a therapist and she's like, you know, I think that you could actually do this. And so it's been nice because when I was a teacher, I didn't feel like I could express that part of myself. The idea that, you know, someone could Google me and find that I was a sex coach was like really, really scary. So in a way, it's actually been really liberating to be like, you know, what, I don't have to shy away from this type of knowledge anymore just because I teach children. And it's been really great. It's been an interesting way to like making the content is kind of like being a teacher, but in a completely different way. So I do encourage, you know, it's not it's not the easiest pass being a coach, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you like especially getting started but it's been a great way for me to sort of express a different side of myself teacher wise so i do love the explore space please check it out well thank you so much Lacey, for coming on for sharing your story for sharing all this great advice about editing i'm so grateful for you to come on i know so many teachers have been looking for this type of path and this has been really super helpful yeah and you know i'm happy to i i do lurk the comments on your instagram so if i ever see someone asking about editing maybe i'll respond to them (laughs) well (laughs) 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me and for all you do for all sorts of teachers, myself included. I mean, like I said, when I was in that really dark place, I was really, really thankful for what you were putting out in the world. So I appreciate you and I'm glad to pay it forward in my own small way. I want to give a huge thanks to Lacey for coming to this podcast and sharing her story with this audience. If you want to help this podcast, we'd love it if you took a couple of seconds out of your very busy day to leave us a rating and review. There are so many teachers still looking for this type of support and many have no idea it exists and those ratings really help people find our community. Thank you so much and we'll see you on the very next episode of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. Thank you.